what we believe is there's an obsession with those stories from many legacy outlets. And you go to a homepage on a normal day, and it's hard to find a single headline that doesn't have doom, crisis, catastrophe, devastation somewhere in its headline. And there are tragedies all the time, but there are also some incredible breakthroughs. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard is from my interview with Max Towie, who is the co-founder and CEO at Roka News. Um, so Roka is a startup building a community around the news that lowers the blood pressure. So I think we probably need this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so they believe that alarmist and partisan coverage has been responsible for much of the news avoidance we're seeing to get today. Um, this ties in perfectly to our main story coming up. Um, so they are aiming for balanced and informative coverage of just a few stories a day and are hoping to rebuild the younger generation's trust in news. They only launched in mid-2020 and they've already got over a million Instagram followers. So um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this chat. I thought it was really thoughtful and interesting. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. But before we get to that, we are delighted to have announced the Publisher Podcast Summit. So you can, <laughs> so you can find out more about that. Um, tickets are on sale. The agenda is released at the end of this month, and you can use Pod Twenty for twenty percent off tickets. Esther, where can they use that code? PublisherPodcastSummit.com. Whoop whoop. We're so brilliant at really didactic website names, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to be talking about a new report which found that trust in news has collapsed to a historic low. I feel like we say that every year. And that the percentage of Americans in particular who say they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers and television news has absolutely collapsed. And I think as the report goes on, we sort of see that there is one thing to blame and that's partisanship. So Peter, why don't you take us through some of those key findings? But the numbers are just fucking terrifying. <laughs> just 5% of Republicans in this report say that they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers compared to 35% of Democrats. Now, it doesn't matter who's, who's, who's on what side there. The point is the two sides do not trust each other and they don't mm. trust the media that's reporting. And that gap, I don't know... There's a date, not a date, there's a time frame that the report lifts. The gap between Republicans and Democrats in the US began to widen during the Bush and Obama administration mm. and has continued to widen since. There's, there's, there's got to be, a, the time frame of that I think is really interesting. For one, one thing is Bush and Obama were quite far one way, quite far the other way in terms of their administrations. Bush is obviously right, apparently left. So that's going to start that partisanship. But what what else happened at that point? Come on, people. The rise of the internet news. Exactly, social media. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, internet news starts coming through. I don't think we can blame social media entirely. I'm not blaming it. It's just there. Um, I think I think it's not just social media. Because one of the things the internet has given access to, which the Axios piece does point out, is crazy is, people. Yeah, <laughs> well, they, they call it partisan voices. It's slightly more <laughs> tangible than that. But it's I was going to say it's people sitting in front of sort of microphones or on blogs or whatever, like us. Just but yeah, but <laughs> um, just just spouting off, and and I think you can you can start Definitely to like find. <laughs> 
Um, you know, if, if if you disagree with something that a mainstream media outlet is saying, you can go and find a group of people that agree with you and will reinforce those points of view without any kind of you know fact checking or, or anything that goes on as standard in in sort of quote mainstream media outlets. Mm. Uh, but actually, there was there was a really funny quote in this piece that um, I thought was really bizarre. I don't know what you guys make of this. That <laughs> semaphores Ben Smith. Oh my god! <laughs> I know. I was <laughs> like, god, so, yeah. So they they had a bit of a disastrous kind of pre-launch event on Thursday. Don't invite controversial figures, just for the sake. Oh, anyway. it's point. I mean, we could have spoken about that for hours. <laughs> so he said that it wasn't entirely the internet's fault that traditional institutions had lost trust. And he said that the single most important factor in media distrust was the horrible coverage in the run-up to the Iraq war and the disastrous media coverage in the years after 9-11 when mm. television and newspapers were still the dominant form of news. Now, I was only like... 10 at the time so i don't know how this actually i don't know how this actually reflects that ben smith's a really smart man and they you know he he was brilliant at the the new york times that's a really bad take i guess what i said earlier could sound like i was blaming social media there's there's two sides to that coin there's good and bad the good side is opens up all sorts of uh, opens up access for all sorts of voices and some of those voices are really important to hear <laughs> but it also opens <laughs> up the, the, the channels for the crazies and there's well, no mediation so, yeah well we do need to yeah we, we need to acknowledge that but also i think esther you were very keen that we didn't conflate this with some of the things we were talking about from the uh, from the Reuters report around news avoidance this is a very different issue yeah and i think i think honestly a lot of the declines we've seen in trust have, have been accelerated over the last few years when you've got politicians at the top actively saying you know i i dis like you shouldn't listen to these outlets you shouldn't listen to these news outlets that fake as news, far as baby, i'm aware news. Um, it, those kind of rallying cries that as far as i'm aware i know i was quite young weren't around sort of 15 20 years ago but that's it, definitely the difference between obama and trump mm. you know obama used electronic media email and social media to get elected he activated his base using yeah. digital media trump has attacked his opponents using social media and other forms of digital media that's the difference but, there and in the uk we saw it both on the right and the left in the 2019 election basically saying that these people are not legitimate news outlets easy lazy um, point scoring well, should we have a look at the UK numbers? Because yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. US is hopefully not where we're headed, but the US <laughs> is definitely an anomaly in terms of how extreme it is either side. Yeah. Um, so in, in the UK, we've got a huge, I mean, it's, it probably varies by brand as well in the US, but in the UK, we've got quite a huge variance by brand. So overall, uh, trust in the news in the UK, about 34% of people sort of trust it. Um, there was actually, we did talk about this a few years ago, but there was quite a big dip in the 2020 Reuters news report. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just before, uh, that was just before the COVID coverage. And I think we were in the middle of like, goodness, do you remember the Brexit turmoil where like every week, <laughs> um, yeah, all sorts of stuff was going on. And at that point, trust in, trust in the news had actually really plummeted. Mm. Um, it did recover a little bit after the COVID coverage in 2020. Um, and we're kind of, we're hovering it around sort of, yeah, one in three people trust, <laughs> trust the news. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, but that does really, really vary by brand. So if you're the sun, sixty-seven percent of people don't trust its output. Only eleven percent do. Um, 
That's the been like that forever. <laughs> the yeah. one I kind of missed from the Reuters report is how how big the drop in trust of the BBC has been yeah, over the last few yeah. years. Yeah, I think that they've been a casualty more than anybody else of this. This partisanship in the UK, which has started mm. creeping in, because they basically, you know, they've always said if they're pissing off the left and the right in equal measure, then they're doing their job. But that's now having a knock-on effect on whether people see it as a legitimate source of information at all. Um, so they they were, in, in 2018, 75% of respondents said that they trusted the BBC's coverage. That dropped to 55% in 2022, and that's that's been the biggest noted drop. They are still the most trusted news source in the UK. So mm-hmm. like, everybody's kind of had a bad few years, but that that's definitely one of the most dramatic drops. I wonder if the mail will now overtake the sun in terms of distrust after Beergate and the, and the two weeks of non-stop coverage that around and that, Did you see that cover the other day? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell have they done? It's just unbelievable. <laughs> it, that's gone right on top of uh, my list of whiny newspaper headlines that, oh, um, that I love. There was that, and then in the aftermath of... Brexit, the Daily Express put, put out a headline that said, why won't they let us leave? <laughs> <laughs> it was so whiny. You know, Piers Morgan, when Boris was going, oh, I just called him Boris. <laughs> bullshit. When a former Prime Minister who's still squatting in Downing Street was no, going. No, 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 move on, oh, move on, move sorry. on. Uh, he, he comes on the set with a pig, holding a pig. Mm. That's not news. That's light entertainment. Yeah, but he's desperate. But but the fact that nobody's watching him (laughs) implies that we're not anywhere near the US at the moment. And yeah, we spoke about this a few weeks back. That actually, Esther, thank God, people in the UK (laughs) at the moment haven't kind of got a taste for seeking out that kind of partisan news. Like (sighs) certainly, whenever I speak to people, they say you know they want to find, they just want to find the facts and. Mm the kind of middle-of-the-road reporting. They don't want to be told what to think on either side, whereas in the US it seems that people are sort of seeking out the extremes to reinforce their viewpoints. So yeah, maybe we don't have anyone that's quite as mental as Tucker Carlson. I don't know. I don't what was Ben Smith thinking, honestly? All the write-ups have just been like, that was a disaster start to finish. Well, it's that, it absolutely proves that there's no such thing as bad publicity as a yeah. lie. Yeah. <laughs> One, just to quick sort of end point on this I spoke to David Lloyd at Social Spider on Thursday on Twitter Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was actually in a DCMS select committee meeting during the the, all the (laughs) shenanigans how Um, are you going to concentrate must have been mad Um, but he said it was a really good discussion and um, they were talking about lack of funding lack of journalists on the ground Um, he said that um, Reach was there also uh, and he said that you know, the, the the good thing about Reach is they're trying to find a business model based on journalists. You know, they've kind of switched from this, let's not resource this. They're actually putting journalists on the ground. I think there's still a conversation about that, <laughs> what they're actually focusing on. Or like, mm. next door neighbour got my delivery, delivery. <laughs> um, but he says at least that there's a a sort of forward focus there rather than just you know big news organizations milking the cash cow to death yeah in, in local papers um and he said it was good to see how many independents were represented at dcms so maybe that maybe i was being massively pessimistic the, the problem is that it's we're not going to be able to say for certain whether we're going down that path for years yet so I think maybe, okay, let's reconvene here in 10 years' time to see exactly how the UK has fared. 
And now to the news in brief. And the European podcasting scene is lagging behind that of the US, at least in terms of the huge amounts of money being poured into acquisitions and exclusive content over there. But there's an article on The Fix that points out that European publications are using podcasts in a slightly more selective way for a different purpose, to steadily grow young audiences and bring them into publishers' ecosystems in a sustainable way. So we're talking specifically here about publications doing podcasts and making sure that they're doing them right. And there's some really good examples in there from the FT, from Tortoise, although, Peter, you only found out that they have a podcast with Andrew Neil this week. I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, you can ask them about it at the Publisher (laughs) Podcast Summit because we can't confirm anything, but Tortoise might be speaking. International. Uh, So, yeah, FT, Tortoise, and Cora, some really good examples in there. So please do check that out. It actually gave me, you know, we, we always, I think I feel a little bit inadequate in Europe when it comes to podcasting. And yet this sort of gave me hope that we're doing it in a slightly smarter way. And like the next story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, this one's just... Uh, I mean, what, what time did this broke? Like late last, last night. night. Yeah, yeah. we're recording on Saturday morning. So apparently Twitter is getting itself ready to sue Elon Musk. This is the story that Don't keeps on getting this coming. The whole point of this is he's junked the $44 billion takeover deal that he proposed. He says they didn't, Twitter didn't give him the information he needed to judge how many fake accounts were on the platform. How do you do a shrug emoji on a a (laughs) podcast? I mean, Jesus. Chris, you've covered this quite a lot. What? That's bollocks, right? It's It's total bollocks, yeah, because A, he didn't do due diligence ahead of the deal. Um, He he waived his rights to due diligence. Waived his rights to due diligence, yeah. Um, It'd be, you know, Twitter's fake accounts are broadly in line with the rest of the industry. Facebook, for instance, has a 5% bot problem as well. Twitter gave him access to the data firehose, so presumably, you know, there is stuff in there that he thinks he can use to get out of this, but it seems unlikely. And B, they just, on Friday, they announced that they're removing, God, something ridiculous, like a, a oh, yeah, million, yeah. a million spam accounts a day. Yeah. So they are they are on it. It's, I mean, regardless of that, though, this is humiliating for Musk. Uh, I mean, the deal—the actual deal says that if he pulls out or if the deal falls apart, he's got to pay a billion pound breakup fee. See, that is such a good business model for Twitter. <laughs> a billion well, that, for just but, like but some they don't, But they—they they don't seem to be planning to accept that. They mm. seem to be planning to take legal action to push the deal through. Force Why him to yeah, push take it over. Through? I don't know. I take I take the billion and run. I definitely yeah. would. <laughs> But the, I think the problem here is that there's, that there's some severe reputational damage to Twitter as well as Musk here, yeah, because they, you know, in in the way that they approach the deal, they sort of made themselves beholden to this man-child, and I think I that like it's this. reflected very badly on the CEO and some of the board. So yeah, we'll have to see what happens with that. So um, just if we can do just a little bit of corporate business for Media Voices, I would update the Media Voices board that mm-hmm. with the shares now. Twitter shares now worth just $36 rather than $54. It was offered by Mr. Musk. Oh. My $450 worth of Twitter shares are now down $70. <laughs> and we will not be going for lunch next week on Twitter. <sighs> so now we've been personally affected Absolutely. by Elon Musk. <laughs> so yeah, we can feel legitimately aggrieved by this. Um, so in my news in brief, The Guardian has become the latest big UK publisher to sign a licensing deal for Google News Showcase. Um, this is following other publishers like BBC News, Sky News, Telegraph, Daily Mail. Um, so the showcase, I, I actually kind of, 
I went to look at this for this story and I couldn't find it until I Googled Google News Showcase. And it turns out it's actually sort of like embedded <laughs> That's what they in want. <laughs> Google News. Well, I don't That's understand. That's the okay. business model. I, I don't sometimes get any traffic then because like the, I don't think the licensing is based on, on clicks or anything. Um, so news publishers have to provide three stories a day for this sort of dedicated panel in the showcase. Um, Google has said there is a consistent formula to the payments but didn't share what those numbers were. Right. Um, but actually, at the moment, in the UK, 93% of the titles are local news publishers. Mm. Well, the only holdouts on this, though, is like the mail, right? So wait, but the Daily Mail's in it? Not according to Fresh Gazette's... Um... Oh, we might have to check this, because according to journalism.co.uk, <coughs> the Daily Mail is in it. Oh, scrap, 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 Ooh. scrap, scrap. Because okay. Fresh Gazette, you know, remember that slightly yeah. strange Fresh Gazette headline? Anyway, we'll, Guardian we'll, we'll... accepts <laughs> filthy Google cash. Journalism.co.uk team uh, meet us outside school at, after 3 p.m. And the Press Gazette team meet us there as well. And we'll have a big scrap and we'll see who's right. I we always knew it was going to end this way. I can't see the Daily Mail on it, but I can't see the Guardian in it either. Do you know what? <laughs> okay, I can see enough. in it. What? So I'm actually not impressed so far because it's, it, it's, it's literally just local news publishers from all around the UK from nowhere where I live. And I can't tell them where I live to get the relevant one. So the first thing I've seen is... Um, 10 North Staffordshire perverts every parent needs to know about. <laughs> if you're looking for a pervert in North Staffordshire, here's your best locations. Anyway. The- think, no, it's, not like, it's not like find a supermarket, Peter. It's probably just like look out for these guys. <laughs> I thought this was, was some kind of swinger sale. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a really good piece in journalism.co.uk looking at the possible viability of the platform for smaller news publishers. So we'll link to that in the show notes. I, can I just say, I'm, I'm sick of us always ending our news roundup talking about Staffordshire perverts. Just one week, I would like to not. Anyway, after that um, very relevant news roundup, this week I spoke to Max Towie, co-founder and CEO at Roka News. So I started by asking him what prompted him and his co-founders to launch the site. Spoiler, it might involve a little bit of news avoidance. So the founding story is began in the pandemic, April 2020. I think, like a lot of people, another guy, believe it or not, named Max who I was working with at the time. We were hosting a podcast in Washington, D.C. that had grown a lot. So we were kind of in the media space already. But come April 2020, our lives were the news. I mean, everybody was inundated in news all day. And at that point, it felt like the problems we and our peers had felt with the news media kind of reached a fever pitch level of bad in terms of the alarmism, the partisanship, where you go on two different channels and you feel like you're observing two separate realities. And not so much just that sort of typical, uh, you know, issue of, of partisanship and bias, but also how news was delivered, cable news, you know, paywalled websites, print journalism still. And as news junkies ourselves, and Max comes from a newspaper family in New York, I was reading the newspaper when I was a young kid, you know, it's sentimental, but it's outdated. So we thought more about what do you, you what does a news company that reaches us and our friends look like? And uh, so we spent all the pandemic thinking about that, Um, called up my best friend from college, Billy, he was working on Wall Street at the time. He quit his job. We all quit our jobs and we set out to start this company. We launched uh, late August of uh, 2020. I mean, that's a fast spin-up time from having the idea in April to just going in in August. 
I think we were eager to do something. We always had an entrepreneurial itch and this was just, it felt like love at first sight. We knew we needed a, a problem we were utterly passionate about that we could sleep, you know, virtually not. And, and I think it was also our friends seemed to all have the same problem and the, the you know, the data would suggest the same. The Reuters Institute's annual report showed that young people can't stand the news. And that's too bad because I think there's an impression on them that Gen Z or young millennials aren't curious. And in reality, it's just, it's it's a it's a market that, that uh, needs a lot of uh, innovation. Do you have any journalists that write stories yourselves or are you sort of taking what you see from the news and, and packaging it in a way that is easy, well, not, not easier because that, that's patronizing younger people, but is more, um, less partisan. That's it's, it's certainly more the latter. However, we intend to, and are starting to, uh, grow in the former. So we believe the main value proposition we provide is telling the news in a voice that our readers can understand and appreciate. And so a lot of it is really curating the news and selecting stories that our uh, generation would find interesting. Um, and by the way, I say our generation, but it turns out our readership uh, is significant as young as 15 and as old as 75. So I don't mean to say we're only looking for you know, our, but but primarily, I think, you know, um, uh, you know, a younger audience and it's it's exactly it's curating and telling stories in a way that's interesting and enjoyable. And we are excited to get more into in real life content. Um, you know, one of my co-founders, Max, he traveled to Ukraine during the ongoing war, talked to many refugees, got some terrific content. Uh, both inside Ukraine and on uh, various borders. And he just is getting back from the Amazon where he encountered some fascinating uh, stories. So all that's to say, after, you know, we're, we are mostly in the curation business, but we also intend to grow in the uh, original content. Was, was Instagram the first platform you launched on or did you have a website first? You know, we actually had a website from day one and virtually no Instagram. Instagram was an afterthought, which seemed crazy because one of our realizations in December, 2020 was, wait a second, why are we doing the website thing? And the, you know, Twitter, th our friends are on Instagram and that's where uh, the millennial and upper Gen Z generation spend most of their time is on Instagram. So we were like, shouldn't there be good news on Instagram? And that was, our first big growth area, but we did start with the website. So how, how, I mean, how did you grow Instagram? Cause it's got over a million followers now. It grew, you know, once it, it didn't start that way. Uh, it really, really didn't. I mean, when we had, uh, 1500 followers and it felt like the only comments we would get were from like our aunts who just got on Instagram or our closest college friends. But I think what happened was, People who spend a lot of time on Instagram, uh, once they heard about this account that would do just four stories that you need to know every day, and then a deep dive on a random, random subject. You know, the inventor of ramen noodles, this story of, I, I mean, it could be anything. Uh, 
you know, once once we kind of developed this formula, it sort of it caught on. So uh, we were very, you know, lucky that people liked it and we innovated a ton. Our, you know, we changed how we did stories a lot, but it ended up going from 10,000 to then 100,000. And then uh, by last fall, a million. Uh, and we really focus on a community. I mean, uh, you know, one thing we really emphasized is, you know, I think a lot of people have the impression that there's a glass panel that separates news company or publisher and audience where it's like, how do you get in touch with the Washington Post when you read a news piece? Sure, you can comment on their website or, you know, dig up the author's email and try to send a call, but it feels so impersonal. And whereas for us, we're always responding to DMs, always responding to emails, engaging in the comment section. And so it developed a new community of sorts. And we're so, that's our favorite part. It really is, is the community. How does that work when you get to the kind of level of following that you're starting to hit? You know, like it's, you can respond to 10,000 DMs, but when you've got a million followers, how are you kind of coping with that? Well, it's true. We can't respond to every comment and there are, you know, some uh, uh, time limitations we have, but we do on the email spend about a combined 12, I mean, 12 hours every day responding to, uh, to DMs and, or sorry, to emails and, and, and interacting and getting to know readers. It's an incredible experience. So it's a lot of work, but we think it's a worthy investment. It's so funny you mentioned email because um, I, I saw that you'd, you'd got this email newsletter that was a, a big part of the growth. Um, uh-huh. But actually, the Reuters report said that email was really quite unpopular for the sort of under 40s. Is, is your email audience different to your Instagram audience or are, are people a bit more willing to use email than perhaps the Reuters report suggested? That's a great question. So there is definitely, first of all, there's a reason our largest audience is on Instagram. It's a more engaged <laughs> platform. It's a more used platform. But we've been surprised at how many under 35s have come to email. And I think we didn't place a lot of eggs in that basket early. But it turns out that especially news interested young people who really want to go deeper, that there is appetite for that. And I think Sure, the email medium isn't ideal, but it's it's pretty much the most universal channel. I mean, most I think it's like fifty percent of twenty five year olds don't use Instagram or are inactive on Instagram. So that's only fifty. Everybody has an email. Not 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 everybody uses it for newsletters, but it's a universal medium. And B, uh, I think it's also how emails have been used. I think a lot of newsletters are out of touch, and so when you do get one that has a voice that feels personal and it's like your friend telling you the news and it tells interesting stories and it and you know we try to build relationships with readers i think that has allowed us to defy the trend and i know if i can real quickly say i think you look at two companies like the skim and morning brew and i know in the skim story uh early on their founders danielle and carly they were working at nbc and a lot of people advised against the newsletter model because who reads newsletters and they their point was who reads the existing newsletters? Nobody, but we can make one that they do read. So I think we've thankfully been able to find a, a group that does. And, and as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of people above 50 who read it as well. Um, and your latest funding round, I think you've just gone and bought a news app company. So I mm-hmm. assume an app is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also interested to know that uh, 
you're, you're looking to use the, the funding round to develop gaming features. So what will that look like? And I suppose why? Absolutely. So I think one of the frustrations we've had on social media and Instagram is a great platform. You know, it's so easy to it's so easy to complain about wherever you exist and its shortcomings, but you still are operating on someone else's platform and forgetting the various uh, for forgetting the fact that you're just one blip in somebody's feed and you don't really control the full news experience. Instagram's busy. People are already itching to kind of go to the next post. It's the nature of the platform. It's how they designed it. So you're controlling one very small part of the news experience, which is just how you populate a post on Instagram. So just the content aspect. And we think there's real value in developing a platform that allows you to control all the news experience. And we say that that might sound like, oh, so he wants to be a puppet master. You know, in reality, the reason we do is because we think that the endless scrolling that people do on social media is unnecessary and it's bad for your mental health. And so we envision a platform that tells you at the end of the day, you're done. Congratulations. You got the news you needed to know. We gave you an opportunity to explore interesting stories and special content offerings we have on the app. But beyond that, you know, you're done. Go outside, enjoy the day. Uh, so uh, that's one reason we want to do an app is to, is to offer a healthy end-to-end news experience. We live in a world of TikTok and Candy Crush and Fortnite, where if you're spending 80% of your fun time doing that, and you go to an app that feels out of 2009, you're probably not going to feel engaged. So we feel very strong about adapting to the times and and giving something that doesn't treat news as this boring, you know, eat your carrots every day activity, but is instead fun and self-improving. Talk of TikTok, you, I think you're you're on TikTok now. How's that going? It's going well. I mean, it's it's in in speaking of like adapting and TikTok is it is it's an entirely new adventure. I love it. I don't know about you. It is just so addicting. Um, and we do have a TikTok at Roka News. And, you know, we launched a couple months ago. In the first month, we got to almost 10,000. In the last month, we got to almost 40,000 followers. And what we are trying to do with the TikTok is a little different. You know, we wanted to be more about our brand, our personalities, the office, talking, you know, doing on the street interviews in New York and elsewhere we'll eventually go. And the idea is make it fun. You know, I think when we think about building the company generally, we won't, we don't want to have this stiff, uh, unrelatable demeanor, but instead, you know, make the news enjoyable and, and kind of sell the brand. I think brand is very holistic. It's not just the content you do every day, but it's what's your office like, you know, what are your team members like? You know, is this something that feels personal to me, which is something we really, really care about. So uh, it's been new. And I think um, developing entertaining content is the most important thing. You know, not, you know, you kind of have to adapt to each platform. And that's, I think, name of the game for TikTok. Well, unless Instagram turns into TikTok, in which case problem solved. Which it seems they're trying to with Reels. And what about the revenue models? What what sort of avenues are you looking at to, to make Roku News make money? As mercenary as that sounds. 
Yeah, exactly. So eventually we want uh, to be uh, independent in terms of how we make our money. Uh, we want to have an e-commerce uh, operation and we want to communicate to our community how important independence is. You know, I think there's uh, a lot of companies are beholden to their advertisers and we don't want to get there. Um, in the short term, however, and at our stage, doing, you know, semi-regular advertisements is a very different thing. And of course, there's an entire, you know, there's no level of, uh, you know, interaction really between our content and advertisers. But, you know, be beginning with that, um, and that allows us to keep the content free. You know, we don't want to do paywall. One of the findings, as I'm sure you saw in Reuters Institute as well, is people are hesitant to pay for news. Uh, young people especially. And when you look at median subscriptions in the U.S., it's a small number. And we also don't believe the news should cost money. Uh, it's a very important thing. And so we begin with advertising and eventually getting into e-commerce a little bit more. Um, and that's kind of the near-term solutions. And thankfully, we have a great community. So we're very optimistic in what that'll look like. Um, but yeah, that that's that's... Uh, that's how we're approaching it. Um, and a lot of the publicity for the site includes the idea that, that Roku News is sort of fun and lighthearted, and, and you've spoken about that quite a bit. But I suppose the last few years, a lot of the things that have gone on in the world have been, well, anything but fun and lighthearted. So I suppose, how do you how do you make the news fun when there's so much going on which is anything but fun? It's it, That's a terrific question. The first thing I would say is clarifying what we mean by fun. We will not shy away from important conversations and coverage on the world's most important stories. And it's true. Terrible things happen all the time. And our job is to not sugarcoat them or put a positive spin on tragedy. Tragedy exists, it's terrible, and it's our duty to cover it. And we do that with facts, and, um, and we do it as, as is fitting. What we believe is there's an obsession with those stories from many legacy outlets. And you go to a homepage on a normal day, and it's hard to find a single headline that doesn't have doom, crisis, catastrophe, devastation, somewhere in its headline. And there are tragedies all the time, but there are also in some incredible breakthroughs in, in medicine, in science, in culture. There are some fascinating developments, some heartwarming stories, some positive news. And so I think it's the obsession on the darkness and of the world that we believe is not a reflection of the world. So our job is to hold a reflection. It's not to make the world seem like one giant candy shop because it isn't, but instead to cover tragedy fairly and fact-based and then also try to balance it out with some interesting stories um, and, you know, <laughs> and, and cover things that give us hope. Um, one of the other selling points you've got is that you say you're sort of unbiased and non-partisan. I suppose it, it feels like there are some issues that you can't help but be partisan on. I'm thinking especially things like um, the, 
what we've seen in the US recently with abortion, that feels like a, a issue where there are very much there are two sides. How do you report on something like that where it is difficult not to take a side? I think in the US, it's been a uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll speak from our own experience. It over the last four months, there have been a number of issues that have come up that are unbelievably divisive in the views on which break down and party lines for the most part, whether that be the January 6 hearings, the mass shootings that have taken place, Roe v. Wade. And our philosophy on covering such difficult subjects is to simply lay down the facts. And I know that sounds, you know, like lip service, but we really do try to explain context and do our very, very best. We ask our audience always to judge us by our fruits and to read and, and, you know, they can judge for themselves on whether it was a fair take. Um, And we try to present both sides. And so for Roe v. Wade, one thing we did that we felt was um, helpful to people was to provide a history on it. Uh, I think a lot of people have a vague idea of the 1973 ruling, but giving a history of it, some of the major cases that have taken place since then, and then what the general arguments are of each side to the day. And it's not going to be perfect. Nobody's ever going to be perfect, but I think what we do is we frame the issues in a way and we do our very, very best to give both sides uh, on these challenging issues. It's very different for Roe v. Wade versus uh, a mass shooting, which is more you simply report on the facts of that specific uh, tragedy. Uh, whereas Roe v. Wade is, a, there's argument and its viewpoints clashing in large part. So you kind of, it does require a little more art, which is hard because that lends itself more to, you know, not giving fair representation. Um, but we do our best. So it, it is difficult. I, I suppose at least Trump isn't in power anymore because there were an awful lot of occasions where he would say something that was factually not correct and fact checkers would get called biased because they were fact checking. Exactly. Him. I mean, it, it, it's it's very, it's very, and, 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 you know, one thing we do, I should mention as well, is we, we're not operating in a vacuum. And I say that because we know people are getting fed on social media and from news outlets headlines about politicians all day. And it's good business because people love a good drama and a good food fight. And that's what our politics largely is today. But we also stray from culture war and political theater as much as we can, unless it really is something that you need to know. And I think, frankly, that the media has given into that drama and they cover it like it's a reality show where you'll go to left-leaning outlets and they'll cover Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and some of the more divisive right-wing politicians. And you go to right-leaning outlets and they'll cover AOC and Ilan Omar and various politicians that are kind of give culture war fodder to conservative audiences. And, and, and we try to stay out of that because we think that there shouldn't be such an obsession with that theater. But you're right. I think when when, when sometimes you do have to take a stand when a politician who might be one party says something that's wrong and it's part of a major story and someone might say, well, are you taking a side because you said it's wrong? And that's when it's like, no, we're taking, we're trying to take the side of reality. And, you know, it, it's, 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 
it's challenging. I, I don't know what your take is on it, but we live, I, I think the UK is unique in that it's divided and like the uh, Prime Minister Johnson uh, Sega right now is interesting. If, to if he's still prime minister at the point this goes out, which, <laughs> we <just don't> <laughs> which we don't know. I mean, it's still less divided than the U.S. We really don't participate in a game of of vilifying us an entire side. We really try to not do that. So, are you hopeful that there's a future where there is much like you can almost start to reverse that polarization? Our philosophy is yes, and our hope is that the best way to do it is by lowering the temperature. I think what makes it so difficult is everything is ratcheted up where you think of like the volume system in U.S. politics and U.S. political discourse feels like it's at 100 out of 100 at all times. And we believe that there's an unhealthy obsession on politics. And of course, it's relevant to people's lives, but that doesn't mean it deserves 24-7 attention it doesn't mean you should build your identity around it. There's been some incredible research on how the people who place politics as the source of their meaning in life ha- tend to be unhappier. Uh, Arthur Brooks, uh, a writer for The Atlantic and professor at Harvard, a lot of his research is just that, that you know, if, if politics is the main center of meaning, it's going to lead to more unhappiness. And we believe that the media has been very irresponsible in pitting groups against each other in feeding this partisanship, in vilifying uh, groups and kind of, you know, uh, playing to their base, and which has led to obviously this. And we believe the only way it can come back together is by lowering the temperature because uh, the, the kind of 24-7 food fight culture just can't work. It's not going to work. And unfortunately, I think history would say when it does this, there might be like a, an event that, you know, would have to – shock the system or break the system and you'd have to build anew but we believe that there's hope by lowering the temperature and i i think by not participating in that saying no this isn't acceptable i mean presumably the the popularity of, of roca implies that there is a big yearning for that sort of thing we hope we really really hope uh and and i i we've been unbelievably heartened to see the political and well, every sort of diversity, but especially the political diversity in the Roca audience. You know, I think part of everyone wants to hear what they believe and hear it in force and live in that echo chamber and also hear the side they, they disagree with, villainized. I think there's a part in all of ourselves that, that had that desire. And I think we live in a system that feeds it all the time, all the time. And we don't want to feed it. We want to feed the other part that my, it doesn't mean you, you can't have strong political views or even fall you know pretty far right or far left, but we believe that you should understand the other side and take it you know take your news from just facts and not pre-spun uh, narratives. Um, and what's next for Roca? Well, I think the next thing is that app, uh, getting it out there in, 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 the, in the coming months and we believe and are very excited for our Roca audience to to see it and we can't wait to hear feedback uh and we hope it makes people happier and is part of a daily routine that leads to a more fulfilling life that's our real goal uh so that app and i think uh it's also continuing to grow our newsletter instagram and tiktok i think we really want to reach we've seen the appetite 
We've seen the yearning, as you said, and I think our hope is to to get out there more. And also we really want to travel a bit and meet people in our community and eventually, you know, build kind of smaller networks around the country and hopefully world. We have a lot of uh, readers in the UK and in Canada and in Australia. So, you know, building uh, our community more. Um, the last thing we ask all our guests is what's the last thing you read or saw that really affected you? P- possibly not a great question to ask at the end of this. <laughs> it, can, it can be positive effects. I've watched some great documentaries recently. I watched one called Fantastic Fungi about mushrooms. And <laughs> I, I love it. I, I, was that the answer you were expecting? I love those documentaries or books or essays you read that give you a greater sense of humility about the world where all this, all the times you're out in the forest and you don't realize there's this unbelievable kingdom and universe of mycelium and, and this kind of what they believe is smart life around us. And we think we're the only intelligent creatures in the universe, but in reality, fungi are unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, it's also interesting to learn about how different cultures across time have used them to treat uh, people in like a medical context. So that was the first thing to come to mind. I mean, that's, I, re- I don't think you can top that. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, just a reminder, if you haven't yet seen our appeal for help, please do go to voices.media to read our open letter. Um, if you can share this episode, our newsletter or any of our work with your colleagues, please do. Um, every share, rec- feedback and recommendation is really appreciated by all three of us. Uh, we've been posting screenshots in our WhatsApp group this week. So um, yeah, thank you so much for all of it so far. Please keep it coming and please do share if you can. And if you feel like being, taking direct action to support Media Voices, go to our website voices.media find the support button and hit up our ko-fi page where you can make a one-off contribution we love one-off contributions or you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution and oh my god you have no idea how much joy that brings Mm. us and if you need even more reasons to support us, you can get our daily newsletter. Go to Voices.media and sign up for that. We bring you the most important curated stories of the day so you can get an easily digestible news flash right at the start of your day. And there are also transcripts of all our episodes on the site as well, so you can keep abreast of everything that was happening in the past. <laughs> but until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and another brief tour through some of the most bizarre media news of the week. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>